Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of the World Craft Club podcast. I am James, your host, and I have here with me Seth. Hello. And another special appearance from my, my dear brother and author, Ed Horton. How are you doing, Ed? Good. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing great. It's, it's actually, so we had two recordings today. So I had one at five in the morning. And uh, so I woke up at 4.40 to get, to get ready for that. And uh, honestly, I just never recovered. So I uh, just drank loads of coffee all day. So I am, I am just riding high off that. Hopefully I don't crash halfway through this, but that's- What that's you're saying I'm, is that we're in for a really good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I, I was going to drink some rum to kind of, kind of even us out, out, out a little bit, put the grenade in the right place and, and, and it, will be, it will all be fine. Uh, for listeners who, who, who may have missed that because it wasn't in the recording, um, I- <laughs> We, we were discussing how important grenade placement is because uh, I, I think it's axiomatic that the placement of a grenade is is its most important feature um, in in the urgent moments before it goes off. So, um, yeah, in, in in terms of stating the obvious. So, Ed, how are Quite. you? How are you? That's how I'm doing. Grenade placement. That's right. how you're doing. You're you're wired up on coffee and about ready to start drinking. <laughs> um, so, how the rest of us doing? <laughs> doing well. It's going to be a good night. I think this topic is really interesting. But honestly, I'm really excited about it because it's one that will, I think, really allow our minds to go all over the place. It's an exploratory topic. So for those of you who this just popped up in your podcast feed and you didn't read the title, you're probably all wondering why I brought you here today. (laughs) (laughs) So we're, we're, we're talking faster than light travel right? So faster than light, FTL for short, it turns up in all kinds of sci-fi. And as Seth said, like, this is crazy broad and there's, and it, it, it just, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's essential in order to get from point A to point B. One glaring exception. Um, yeah. If you've yeah, ever yeah. read the uh, Ender's Game trilogy. Yes. That's actually really interesting and they don't do FTL. <laughs> so, stop, steal, stop stealing my thunder, Ed. Stop stealing my thunder. <laughs> I, have, I have that one in mind. <laughs> I'm reading your notes. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, and uh, there, there's, a, there's a couple that do a really good job with sci-fi where they actually go to other worlds and they, and they yeah, sorry, Seth, you've got your hand raised. You may, you may speak. Oh, thanks. Uh, no problem. Anytime. Yeah. It, so it depends how deep you go in the Enders series. <laughs> well, yeah, because the, there is a point where they do have FTL and it's, it's almost like... It's a different like sort of FTL. Okay, I want to because I want to talk about it. Fire away, fire away. I think what we want to talk about is how faster than light travel FTL impacts a world. One of the things that sci-fi really often fails to do is properly examine or at least comprehensively examine how the type of faster than light travel in the world is going to impact society and culture and how it's going to change the people who are actually engaged with it. Yeah. One of the things about faster than light travel, as we've mentioned, is that it's just such a broad spectrum, right? You have people who maybe go through a wormhole. Um, maybe they go through or they create some sort of tunnel that allows them to move faster than light. Maybe they have a... Um, the ability to just increase their speed to a certain point that ends up being faster than light, or they have materials that can withstand that speed. Or maybe they use teleportation, as as, uh, Ed mentioned in Ender's Game, eventually in the Ender's Game series, eventually they get to the point where they're doing a sort of pseudo teleportation by, by moving through sort of planes of existence. All of, these are, all of these are different ways to get from point A to point B and to solve a glaring problem that science fiction has, which is the amount of space that it contains. Mm-hmm. But very rarely do they actually discuss what sort of impact that's going to then have on the world. And, mm-hmm. and I think some of our favorite stories and our favorite science fiction are worlds where they really do touch on that. Are you really? I said, sorry, I'm just grinning because I, I thought of, I thought of another really, really notable exception where this is absolutely not touched on at all. Yeah. No, go ahead. Firefly. Yes. It is never sure. made clear if they break, if they break light in that. Uh, do they have to? 
well, we don't, we actually don't know because isn't they, that they, all in like, solar system? I, well, it's in, it's in a solar system, it seems, but they do a really good job of keeping it pretty vague in the show. I know that, I know there's more stuff that came out and there's like encyclopedias and things like that, but in the show, they were super duper vague about how many planets there were. We knew there were interior and exterior planets. We knew that there was some sort of terraforming action that took place on them. And uh, we, we know that some folks were on the outside of it and some folks were on the inside and did well. It's never made clear if like, I mean, you get the sense that there's one solar system. And I think there may be diagrams in the show that kind of demonstrate it. And I, as I say, there's, there's errata like surrounding it, that, that kind of cements this i think it is a singular system but um yeah it's in that one it's 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 fairly unclear kind of how they do it it's it's not important to the story like how they got to the system in the first place yeah i mean they just say there were loads of people and they came here yeah like it's not important to the narrative which is why which is why they don't build it in the world because they're they're just like space cowboys yeehaw let's go you know like that's what they're doing is their their stories are just about different things no. Yeah, and and there is something to that. I mean, we are very big proponents of the idea that you don't need to build something into a world if it, there's no point, right? If the story doesn't touch on it or if the story doesn't need it, there isn't necessarily a reason to explore it. And leaving it vague does does leave some interesting uh, room for people to explore. But on the other hand if you ever do touch on it, if you ever do say, okay, this is how faster than light travel works, then I sort of feel like you need to really start exploring, okay, what's the impact then? I'd, I'd agree with that. And, and see, see, part of the reason why I wanted Ed specifically on this, on this podcast was because of the spreadsheet. So um, <laughs> this, is, this is how this all kicked off for me. It's like, I, I was kind of pondering about like the depth of information, things like that. And I was bragging on you. Um, I, I, should, I, should have, I should have had you by, by name in there in the World Builder Sanctum. I had put a message in there that basically said, and in, our, and in our own collaborators club that said, hey, I know a guy that made a spreadsheet to manage relativity. Uh, <laughs> and in, in, his, in, his, in his moving or moving about at uh, light or near light speeds, I thought it would just be supremely interesting given that you had gone to that depth to kind of draw you into this and kind of go like, because that's one interesting thing. And I love that you mentioned Ender's Game because that's yeah. how they keep the hero of the last war alive is they put him in near light speed for a really long time. So he is, he is far older uh, than he would appear to be. So like, I just thought that was wild and interesting. And I love that you went into that depth with it. So I, I would, you, would you want to expand on that a little bit? And like, um, kind of like where, why did you do this? Like, um, I'd have to first say that um, most of the credit goes to uh, Albert Einstein, who laid down the formulas that I stole. So I'm sorry, who? All my work. <laughs> yeah, you may have heard of him. He has a website. Go check it out. <laughs> Does he have a podcast? I'm really into that. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's kind of solitary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, my reason for that was um, because... One of, one of my main main things, one of the main features that I have is that I want things to be scientifically accurate because yeah. one of the things that I know is that being a science fiction fan myself as well as a science fiction writer, I know science fiction fans will pick apart anything. <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah. The reason yeah, yeah. I made that spreadsheet is because I put, I basically baited science fiction fans in my first book. I yeah. put several very specific, oh, we're traveling at this speed now. Oh, we're this far out. Just because yeah. I knew that any fan is going to go, ah, I'm going to test those figures, and they were spot on. <laughs> Give them a yeah. try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, that that's it. Just to just to like you know mess with science fiction readers. Um, that that is an excellent have, reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have hours of hours of discussions. There's probably hundreds of podcasts like this where they will argue over things on the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, like you know, and yeah, I just wanted to. Throw my bone. <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> yeah. Your math against my math. <laughs> oh, but, that's um, good. I love that. So, so what impact does that have then on the characters? Because you, or and on the story, because you're obviously keeping this in mind, and yeah. you are, uh, you are adjusting age. I'm assuming relative to how fast they're going and how far they're going when they're coming back. 
um, how do you how do you adjust that, or or what impact does that have on on your world then? Yeah, um, if any, usually within like because there's basically two forms of of breaking the light barrier, so to say. Um, you either go through it or you go under it. Um, like you're under it hyperspace, yeah. wormhole, things like that. Yeah, well, I follow you. Yeah. Warp drive, things like that. Um, I tend to go under it. So I don't tend to approach the light barrier too much. Um, a lot of it in, in most of my most of my books I, I have, because the, the one I'm working on now is about 500 years after the one I did before. So I have edged it up a bit. Um, but I did lessen a lot of the things, dropped them down to like 10% to 12% light speed, which really doesn't generate a um, relativistic factor now. Mm-hmm. Um, in the older one where I was, you know, the older style where I was kind of, you know, playing with the idea of approaching light speed, mm-hmm. they were like losing, you know, 17 minutes here, 20 minutes there. So, I, you know, that particular part, I was just lazy. I didn't really like add it up. They, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. You know, um, so re- really quickly, uh, so you're, you're referring to a couple of things here and I want to make sure, um, listeners are up to speed if they're, if they haven't heard of this Einstein you speak <laughs> of. Um, so it's one is like, like you would need a theoretically infinite amount of energy to reach light speed. Right. And yes. is, is that correct? So the, the light barrier you're referring to is a, it is theoretically impossible to reach and break therefore break the speed of light because you would need infinite energy so that 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 is a physics problem that you're that in your sci-fi novels you will have to overcome in order to reasonably travel to different solar systems within the lifetimes of characters that you're sending yeah. there well, so, unless, unless you can bring relatively uh, relativity into it but you then wouldn't be traveling within like what i was talking to owen and i was explaining this to him hmm. i said that um, if I traveled to a, a planet that was 18 and a half light years away, yeah, I just jumped right out at light speed and then came right back at light speed, he and I would be the same age. He was like, that blew his mind. <laughs> so the but, relativity you're speaking about, sorry, just to, just to continue this, because like, and, and you, you, you summed it up really, really well there. When we talk about relativity, uh, I, I think that the, the simple way to maybe put it is that time behaves differently as you approach light speed. So one of the things we were referring to here is Ed saying, you know, I go 18 years away and come back 18 years. Your son would have aged 36 years, but you would have only aged 18. Wait, well, I would have been, no, 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 actually, no, hang on, go for it. I didn't take into account that he's nine now. So, yeah. but anyway, there is a- Yeah, a I saw you, yeah. At which I'd jump and I'd come back. He would age- the next 37 years. Oh yeah. no, actually I think we're based on the time on the age difference. He'd have aged another 37 years. Mm-hmm. So he'd now be 47. Yes. Uh, 47, which is the same as me. Yeah. Um, yeah, the reason for it is basically um it's the way I understand it is that it's not so much a factor of energy as a factor of energy ratio. Mm. Like obviously the to push something twice as heavy, you're gonna to have to put twice as much energy into it. Around about, I mean, there's other factors, yeah. as well. mm-hmm. but um, light has an effective mass of zero. Mm. Um, it obviously has some mass because it interacts with other masses, but in all measurements, it shows zero. So a small amount of energy put into light gives it an infinite, like energy ratio. And this is where the mass effect idea comes from of transmitting yeah. things from one place to another. The, the famous game franchise, Mass Effect, they, they find a material that reduces the mass of something. And if you get enough of it and you charge it up enough, you can reduce the mass to, it's like zero, but in order to do what they do, it's probably like less than zero. Like there's something weird they're doing there. But yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, so yeah. No, light, just, light, light is light. Light, you would need to have a negative mass, yeah. which... Um, is what sets gravity apart from the other forces is that you can't have a, like a negative effect from it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't have negative mass no matter what Weight Watchers will tell you. 
<laughs> all those sci-fi writers at Weight Watchers trying to tell me what, what physics can do. I've had enough of them, Ed. I'm glad you're putting them in their place. But no, like, yeah, I, I, I follow you. Cool. That, that, that's good. I, I, uh, w w without risking getting too in the weeds with it, I think, I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty clear explanation. And this is, and this is why faster than light travel isn't usually used or, or rather strict breaking the light barrier is not typically used as a faster than light uh, travel method in most sci-fi, right? We start getting into things like quantum tunneling. We start getting into teleportation. We start getting into, um, as you said, using some sort of sub light tunneling, something that doesn't deal strictly with breaking the light barrier, which is interesting because in, in really old science fiction, people went really, 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 really fast to get from place to place. And then our science caught up and we realized you can't do that. And so all of a sudden we had to start coming up with other ways of conquering the space problem, right? The distance problem, mm -hmm. then strict breaking the light barrier by moving faster than light. I'm going to propose a name change for this episode. We should call it Conquering Space. Conquering Space. <laughs> I accept that name change. Yep. Absolutely. Motion pass. But uh, yeah, th th that's that's exactly it. Is is that we're trying to beat this issue that we know that space is giant and we want and part of it is that like this is as so many world building problems are, it's fueled by narrative. Why? Because you have characters and you don't want them to die of old age because that's not a great way for a character to die <laughs> unless you like build it up. You know what I mean? And there's like no. some sensibility to it. Like, How's this for a story? How's this for, I'm going to pitch a story for you yeah, guys. Yeah, let's, let's hear this. Let's do it. Somebody is on one end of the universe due to faster than light, uh, super lumin luminal communication, right? So he can, communicate pretty much instantly, let's say, with somebody on the other side. They mm -hmm. get into a big fight. He jumps in a spaceship. The story is the generations flying through space, each dying, but passing their mission on oh, <laughs> to the like, next like one. Game. Yeah. <laughs> and then they arrive. <laughs> and the other people are all dead. And they've been dead for a really long time. That's that is actually probably scientifically realistic, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, yeah, I can see that. I can see yeah, that happening. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's like, um, what, what is it? Uh, uh um, oh, what's that one? Red Famous Wolf. Red Dwarf. Yes, yep. the cats, and they yep. have, and and they, and they, they, they want to go to the, the, the land of Fushal, which is Fiji, and um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have some like major religious conflicts on board the ship, and then half of them, a bunch of they all, half of them go one way, and half of them go the other, and one gets blown up by like a meteor or something, and the other half like goes off to go and find Fushal. And uh, only cat remains aboard the ship, and they're just—they're actually in the remnants of, of, of an evolved feline holy war, like around, <laughs> based on the cat's understanding of it. Uh, oh yeah. man! Yeah, no, I love that. I love that giant game of telephone that's, for a slap so fight funny. in the middle of the universe. Yep, yeah, I'm down. I like yeah. that. And see, even communication is one of those because, like, in the in the traveler universe, right? They um the way they handle that is is uh and this is neat and this is kind of a neat narrative thing we can do with faster than light. So in Traveler, uh, at least Mongoose's second edition of Traveler that I've, that I've been using, they effectively say you can travel faster than light, but you cannot necessarily communicate faster than light. So you can't right. transmit information. So you get courier ships, which yeah, is exactly what I do in my books. Yeah. Super interesting notion yep. for technology because then then you're kind of like um, that that makes for really interesting stories. You can you yep. be a messenger boy. You can be a you can be the postman. You can be Kevin Costner. And who doesn't want to be Kevin Costner? <laughs> what I what I do to cover that is yeah. I actually have um, it's not so much a voluntary thing. Yeah, it's that there are because um, around about each area where you would cross because obviously whether you have a jump route or not, yeah. there is a nearest point of one system to another. And that's where everybody's going to gather yeah. to yeah. You know, make a jump, so to speak. So what I have is the, the watch satellite there, like basically instantly drops the mail on whoever's going in that direction. Yeah. And 
then they carry it and then it gets dropped back on the other side in some kind of secure system. So you have like uh, distribution points and they just kind of, yeah. yeah, like a secure server on every ship that has the mail. And so, yeah, 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 that's logical. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense with it. And it's, it's uh, yeah, the jump points thing is interesting as well because um, a lot of different, like I really liked your FTL in, um, I think it was your, was it your first book, Ordinary Spaceman? Ordinary Spaceman, yeah. And in that one, what I liked was hyperspace as was was really dangerous and you sunk down into it right like you would descend into it and um dune has a similar sort of thing with it not not necessarily sinking into it but um this idea that it is it is dangerous and erratic and you need to have a you know you need to have somebody who is prescient in dune to do it and you need in in yours there was a there were there was fear of gravity wells and things like that and there's all these kind of hazards and i really like that as a point of tension i love the notion that because it, it brings back the age of the sail, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, and that's such bit, an yeah. exciting era. This whole thing of like not knowing what's coming and the unpredictability of the sea, uh, kind of instead being the unpredictability of of space and yeah. and disasters that can take place and that similarity. So I always thought that was kind of fascinating. I, are there any other good examples of that sort of thing where there was instability in in traveling at, so, at high um, speed? Because this is an interesting wrench to throw in a narrative in the. Warhammer 40k universe yeah. <laughs> something called the warp yeah right mm -hmm. yep <laughs> and and what's really fascinating about it is that not everybody has the ability to do what the what the humans and the eldar and the a, a couple of the races do right so the eldar have sort of a natural ability to navigate this space, this sub subspace, mm. um, the humans use a the emperor, the emperor of Terra, as a giant beacon, right? Sort of a lighthouse to navigate their way through it. The um, there's a race called the Tau who aren't actually don't have any ability to interact with the warp, and they can only do these really short jumps. So their um, sphere of influence is much tighter, right? Mm. Then you have a race, the Tyranids, who simply don't go into it at all instead they fall asleep and they push through space at regular like it's it's not light speed they're going slow and so it takes yeah. them forever to get there but they come in such numbers that when they do get there then you have the orcs who simply jump on a giant rock that's already jumping through the warp and see where they end up. Um, <laughs> so you have all of these different ways of interacting with the same thing, but it's the same idea that that it's an it's not a stable space, which mm. can add some really interesting things because they have no problem bringing having a character disappear into the warp and end up thirty thousand years in the future. They have no problem using it to create chaos in their stories or to um, manipulate their stories in really fun and interesting ways the other thing about having a non-stable means of travel is that there's this natural tension that happens when somebody's like we've got to get to that place fast yeah but the only way is through that really scary tunnel yeah yeah as you say it sort of invokes this mysterious age of the sale adventurous spirit which is really pretty cool and is something that I think a lot of uh, hard sci-fi can struggle with. Mm, because yeah. with hard sci-fi, everything is so cut and dry, right? Everything's figured out, or well, at least it can feel that way on the surface. If you contain it pretty tightly, as with The Expanse, where they were just in the solar system, yeah. that had some pretty interesting qualities to it because they, they were all it was, was like, I, I remember actually I, I worked out a game world one time and the way I decided how fast I wanted my ships to move is I went, I would like it to take six weeks to get from earth to Mars. <laughs> and then I went, this is how fast they can go. <laughs> I'm like, that was it. And I just went like, I just want age of the sale. Like I want it to be a really dangerous adventure. And I, you know, and, and uh, obviously, you know, working out orbits and things like that and figuring out a little of that, but, but roughly this is, this is, this is the time when they're, when they're close enough to each other that you can get between. So um, I loved like running effectively that and making that my, my, my kind of, 
lodestar for that. And I, and I think narrative is always king with this sort of thing. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's what, what kind of story you want to tell. And that's, um, and, and that's, I think a good guide for it because I think a lot of, a lot of places use, uh, I was actually thinking about this, another one where you have vast distances and it's unclear how it's done. Alien, aliens series. Alien, mm-hmm. yep. It is and, never uh, made quite clear what they do. Babylon five. Was mm-hmm. very similar. They they stated several times that the distances in hyperspace bore no rel- no resemblance to the distances in real life. So they could go back to Earth in like two days, but they could go like the other side of the universe in like thirty seconds. You know, it was like you know that's interesting. Perfect. Yeah, it was yeah. a perfect. It's a perfect plot point, really. Right. Because then you can do the distance based on so. So let's let's talk about that for a second or or something tangentially related to that. How mm. do you keep teleportation from ruining a story? This is something I've been thinking about a lot because teleportation is one of those really tricky FTL systems that that has just unbelievable implications for a world and for a society. The ability to move goods at that speed is is insane right can you imagine never being able to hold a defense line can you imagine never being able to stop somebody from moving information somewhere well seth i think it's time i introduce you to my old friend arbitrary limitations (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing though you've got it, it seems like you have arbitrary limitations or you have like perfection that's, right. that's a lot of the problem that I think science fiction comes up with is that they will, they will make things more and more and more and more amazing. And then they've, I can't remember, there is a specific name for it, but basically it's like, you know, like the Death Star. The Death Star can destroy a planet. How can anybody stand against that? I mean, yeah. they did, but if you have something like that, you've made something so powerful that, that it breaks your story. You can't, you can't now... Um, uh, make a story that doesn't include that. It's a um, it's a common thing in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. They'll go, they'll come across this impossible problem, and they'll go, "Well, let's modify a photon torpedo into this range, and then phase modulation, and it'll fix it." And it's like yeah. weeks later, they'll have another episode. It's like, why don't you do the photon torpedo? <laughs> forgotten by that point. Well, I, and 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 this this is this is the thing. It's like I was talking to this is this guy's going to come up a lot. I talked to this guy this morning, right, and. Um, one of the things I was saying is like, how do you make a world that doesn't feel contrived? And he says, it's all contrived. It's a story. And I went like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was just like scratch out the notes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Personally, I would yeah. say the way around that. Yeah. And this is what a lot of, I think a lot of science fiction doesn't do is when, when you have a TV series, obviously the world evolves yeah. as it goes through and it grows. What they need to do is they need to have the start of their show as the halfway point and do half of the evolution of the world prior to that. Don't, don't build a world, grow a world. Societies don't, don't build, they, they grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they evolve and they, you know, um, they in, incorporate things from other societies and, and things like that. And then they, when they, how they interact with other societies also affects how both societies grow. Mm-hmm. Um, what a lot of people do, I think, is that they just basically build it from the beginning, and it's it's static, and it doesn't it doesn't feel alive. Um, yeah, yeah, I I I think I think you're right, I, and you know, I'd actually heard this with uh, a similar problem occurs in a lot of TTRPGs. You give your players something really cool. And then they figure out how to really make it work, right? Like you give yeah. them an idea and they, and they tear it up. And the suggestions that I'd always read, and if anybody's not familiar with it, I love GURPS, right? I love GURPS. I, I know yeah. a lot of people who don't like it and like, I'm fine with that. Like, just think of but it as a tool. It's, it's a tool. Yeah, they are wrong. <laughs> and it is, and, it, and it's, it's, it, you got to think of it as a toolkit. That's okay. I'm going to get off my soapbox. No. Uh, so uh, the way that one of the advice pieces that they gave in GURPS in dealing with Ultratech. So even if you don't like the system, buy the books. The books are incredible. They have great insight on stuff. They are honestly just great world building primers. I recommend them to everybody. Great stuff. So in there, they have this thing that says, what happens if I give my players something that's ridiculous and then they use it to blow everything up? And they said, here's how you do it. 
you, you, you basically do a soft retcon. Later on, a news report comes out that says, this new technology is really freaking dangerous and have them roll on a 1D6 every time they shoot it. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and if they're really unlucky, it blows up or um, you know, it, things like that. And effectively just kind of like allow that room in your technology for it to break back. And I think FTL is a similar thing. And with, with teleportation, I'm, I'm a huge fan as well. Just because we know how it works doesn't mean we know all about how it works, right? Yeah. So like, and this happens with our tech all the time, like in, in real life, like we make something and we're not absolutely certain of its limitations and our society may not be ready for it. And there may be things that kind of have to change or we have to retool some mm -hmm. things or develop them. Um, you know, and, and, and an example of uh, teleportation, like some really good ones is I, I, I had this idea, like I love the idea of, of placing these like hard limitations on crazy technology and just saying the alien race isn't as smart as we think they are. I mean, they might be able to do X, Y, Z, but um, you know, Mm -hmm. There are limits. There are limits that they understand and you don't. Um, so I, I like this idea that there's a there's an alien race that's coming to that's coming to invade Earth. They've been exiled from their home planet. They're in a big bunch of generation ships. They have faster than light technology, but it's limited to mass, and they have so many ships with them that they're like we could not pass everyone through. So they take yep. a look at Earth and they go, well, it's going to take us 600 years to get there. We're going to put everybody in hypersleep. But until then, it looks like there's an intelligent race developing there. So they go, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up a wormhole. And we're going to fire a bunch of munitions in there to like, to, to basically bring them down to size. And then we are going to go and um, uh, arrive there later on and, uh, and, and colonize the planet and maybe, maybe, heck, maybe live with them, maybe get along with them. We're not trying to wipe them out. We're just trying to slow them down a bit. So they're, so they're not competing with us when we get there. So they open up a big wormhole and when they look through the wormhole, because of, you know, time, they're seeing it using their scopes and it's like, you know, the mid 15th century. And then they like look at earth and they're like, Oh, crappers, look at all that crap. And they're just, and they just hammer the crap out of it for a little bit. And then just like send a ship through uh, one like cruiser or something to just land and be the vanguard knowing they're all gonna, they're all gonna die. And they'll probably form like a, a small city there or something and just, you know, live for as long as they can. I like this idea because it makes these really, really powerful, potentially indomitable aliens very vulnerable and like it leaves mm -hmm. them in a position where even though their technology is advanced it's not so advanced that the humans yeah. in the era that they arrive in in the mid like 22nd century are not actually capable of putting them down and so their fight is desperate even right. though they are very advanced and you would assume because we seem to have this thing where we just assume that if one side's got the tech they're gonna win <laughs> you know and but yeah, that's right. not how it plays out it's not how it plays out in the real world you know? No. Yeah, that's the thing. That's that's not how it plays out in the real world. Though technology, you know, can bring you a big advantage. A great oh, example yeah. of that is when, you know, when the Spanish and Portuguese hit South America. Yeah. Uh they couldn't like they had guns. They had they had steel armor. That's yeah. not how they won. They won because of disease, right? right? They would have been drowned in a sea of bodies, if nothing else, but they really would have been killed by poison arrows. Yeah. Like That's any small cut would have killed them because the, the um, Inca and Mayan civilizations that they came across had a much better developed toxicology from living in the jungle. And all of them would have died. In fact, uh, the, I'm trying to remember his name. The um, I think Cortez. Cortez. No, there was a. <laughs> That's my first thought. A Portuguese. I think he was Portuguese cabin boy, who was sick, and a very nice tribe offered to take him along this trade route to where they thought other Spaniards might be, and along the way he gave uh, measles to every single village he came across, mm -hmm. and he wiped out a stupid number of people, like like 20 million people died. But I think it was about 90% of the population. Yeah, from this pandemic, right? <laughs> like, that's why South America was conquered. Yeah. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't the technology that had the impact. It was something completely outside of everybody's control. That, yeah. That's proven by the, um, I believe it was the Vikings. It was, they've shown that Vikings actually landed on um, North America centuries before 
the rest of Europe and were actually chased out by the Native Americans. Yeah. Because, even though they had steel, even though they yeah. had, you know, uh, better weapons, better technology. Yeah. And, and they were Vikings also. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and also they had the advantage of being Vikings. Chase Vikings off. <laughs> like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, we all know they can cast rage. So uh, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's just a worrying thing altogether. But yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that's a really salient point. And it's like this idea that FTL technology, just the first person that develops it, it we, we think of it as an instant KO. But right. it may not be that because even as we talk about arbitrary limitations on technology, we're talking about very real technological advantages here that have limitations that were they in a storybook, we would say that's arbitrary. <laughs> like, yeah, right. but it was real. Right? You can actually overcome this with with a um, actually just basic engineering and and um, academia. Yeah. In that the bigger and more complex something is. The more energy it needs, the more computer power it needs, and the better trained people it needs to operate it. Mm. So a lot of these limitations can be placed, uh, and this is also, I think, a, a big failing in a lot of science fictions, is that we can travel into space now, like 30 people have done it, you know, yeah. 30 people out of seven and a half billion. I don't think in the sense of when we do actually get as to a spacefaring culture, I still don't think there's going to be a hugely crowded sky up there. Because you've got mm -hmm. probably as far as humans, because at the moment, no human is qualified to travel to Mars. Right. Once we get regularly traveling to Mars, there will be like five humans that will literally be able to do it. Nobody else. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. So the, so in a certain sense, the scale of population on earth is going to be a limiting factor as well. Because if we're saying, even if even if we wanted to travel somewhere else, the number of people who would realistically be able to do it would be very very low. Even as passengers, and as passengers, they would need a certain amount of training. Hmm, that's interesting. To be able to do that safely. And you're assuming as as well, which is it, which is it, which is an interesting thing, is that social cohesion of the culture will actually be able to uphold the rapid change right. in technology. Like right yeah. now, we're a culture that is struggling with the fact that we can talk to each other all the time. Social yeah. media has done weird stuff to us, like mentally, like what do we think faster than light travel is going to do? So like the expanse does a really, really good job with this, right? And so, um. I've been reading, reading a little ahead of the series in the books, and uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil what what's coming up next in the series because I, I would honestly make the argument that the uh, TV series is a little bit better than the books in terms of character development, personally, personally. All right. Yeah, that Lord of the Rings and like. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can hear the nerds sharpening their pitchforks now. But, you know. <laughs> Come at me. Like, I think the series, I think this, I think the book series is great. That's why I'm reading it. But the TV series, I think has a, has a, it builds upon Edge. what the books did. So yeah, that's my, that's my hot take. But the, um, there is a recent development in the TV show where they have a culture, you, you, as, as a human culture, we've started going into space, but not everybody's in space. Why? Partly because space does weird things to people. And like, it's, it's, we're not supposed to live in there. If you have, if you get an injury, even a bruise, the blood pools, it doesn't, it doesn't travel the same way it should. And so people can get infections from really minor injuries and contusions, all sorts of weird stuff happens in space. As you go through generations, it gets really dangerous to have children and you, you have to do a lot of growth in your bones and stuff. And like, you're basically trying to densify your bones all the time and you get, people, very, very tall people, effectively, uh, living in space who cannot live on grounded planets anymore. So yeah. what takes place is they suddenly have FTL dropped on them in the form of, of gate uh, inter, interplanetary travel. And so yeah. the belters who have lived in, lived in the belts and have been mining uh, for the benefit of earthers and Martians for a really long time and have kind of benefited for a little while from their kind of tense little cold war they've been doing for a bit, suddenly are like not needed anymore. Why? Because it's profitable to mine asteroids, but it's a lot easier to mine planets. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, what kind of winds up happening is they go, oh, we're not needed anymore on top of being crapped on for like two solid generations. And they're like, we're done. And functionally their society collapses as 
as some of the most groundbreaking technology comes to pass. Right. Yeah. So like, I'm not going to give away any, anything that happens like following that. And it's been hinted at heavily in the show. So I'm not, I'm not breaking anything here, but the, um, because I, I just think this is great. I'm really excited to see how people respond to what's coming next. And I have that sort of, yeah, the guy that's read the book so I can look at it. Like, <laughs> Go back. <yeah. laughs> Wasn't like that in the books. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, that's crazy. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, I really like this idea that's sort of emerging from this conversation mm. that society can can serve to an extent as a limit to the technology that you're using in your story. And an example of this that I just thought of, Battlefield Earth, a pretty crappy science fiction <laughs> book and a really crappy science fiction movie. Uh, man. Ca cavemen flying planes. Yeah, all man. they needed was a simulator. All, <laughs> all they, they needed was a simulator. All they needed. There are yeah. so many more people well, that qualified to go to Mars. That was pumping the information right into their brains. Well, that, that's how simulators work, Ed. Well, no, this, this is this. Well, it's a rapid simulator then. <laughs> <laughs> High-powered, high-speed simulator. Right. Let's just say that uh, L. Ron Hubbard was a better cult leader than he was a science fiction writer. <laughs> he does have some interesting stuff, though, in in this book. And one of the things in Battlefield Earth, what, sort of the, the way that the race that controls the universe controls the universe is through controlling technology. And the technology that they, uh, that they control is teleportation. It uses a lot of energy. It uses really specific math. They build these devices, these teleportation platforms that can move material from place to place. The hero effectively destroys this, this alien race by teleporting a bunch of nukes to their planet, and the chain reaction that it causes wipes them out. Well, the problem is that then every single other person who teleports, because all teleportation is routed through that planet as a hub, ends up teleporting themselves into an inferno. Right, they teleport themselves into a planet that that has gone supernova effectively. Hmm. The resulting explosions pretty much kill all of the engineers, and so all of a sudden, everybody in the entire universe dies. Who knows how the teleportation works, except for one person who they have to trick into revealing it. And in a sense, it's a bit cheap how they do it, but it's a really good example of how something very simple can serve as a, as a limit to a technology. This, this makes me think a lot of foundation. Asimov, right? Like, yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the, the foundation series is an interesting one because it features two things that we've kind of discussed just now. Societal collapse of an advanced civilization, which we seem to believe that, um, advancing technology will lead to some form of social cohesion, right? <laughs> it's Which a Star is, Trek yeah, effect. Exactly. We, we, la we, we think we are going to get better if we just yeah. learned a little more, which is like a fascinating thing. And it's like, it's, it's, it's wild to, it, yeah, it's funny. We laugh at it now, but like, you know, we had such optimism about this, like maybe like 80 years ago, you know, it was like the, this notion of very optimistic futures. Our futures have become more Blade Runner now than they have like, you know, <laughs> yeah. flipping uh, lost in space. <laughs> but it's like, you know, um, as we're, as, as we're kind of looking at that, I think foundation is a great synthesis of a few of these things. One was the control of technology. So in the foundation series, a galactic empire falls apart, but a, uh, a man develops a field of mathematics that enables him to fairly well predict the movements of large groups of people in society. So he anticipates the collapse of Hyper the empire. large. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gotta be, it's yeah. gotta be a lot of yeah. people. Galaxy that becomes scale. Yeah, that was that, where it came from. Um, yeah. was because there were finally enough people in the galaxy Ah, it, re it reached critical mass. So the, yeah. the thing that's interesting about it is that he is able to predict this and, and it's, it's, uh, don't worry about the large groups of people. That's not important at all to the story. Right. That doesn't, no, uh, yeah. That, so the critical, critical weakness, right? Arbitrary weakness in a, in a large thing. That's an interesting, interesting way to throw that in there as well. Cause later on one person causes a yeah. lot of trouble uh, <laughs> and, and it can't be anticipated because the equation is designed person. for large amounts of people. So yeah. he makes right. a series of predictions. Even though, even oh. though most people die, right? Yeah. 
which means that none of the math should work anymore because the critical mass that they've reached has now yeah. collapsed. Well, anyway, I, I still think you have a lot of people. I just think the yeah, cohesion think between them has collapsed. Right. But um, in, in any case, uh, so it, it's not enough to throw off the equation. We'll, we'll take that. And so what he does is he creates a, a secret, uh, secret planet sort of, but well, he doesn't create the planet. He colonizes the planet as a research foundation. And what it really is, is it's the seed of technology for future generations. It's going to resurrect the empire function. Well, not resurrect it, create a new one. And so he has this series of ways to solve problems as they arise. And so one of them is, and a lot of it revolves around technology. So it begins with, uh, with religion. When they do create a religious order in the foundation where all these people are trained to use the technology, but they don't know how it works. They only know that it's like, a series of religious things. You go and you put the battery in the holy vessel, and then you pull the holy lever, and then you move this over here, and you perform the righteous equations, and then you have calculated lading for the for the navigation. You know, and like so, everybody knows how to do that. So what what happens though is they have this immense religious devotion, and they're able to not really it's not quite subjugate other planets. They kind of work with them. But eventually what winds up happening is one of the one of the warlords, local warlords, gets some ideas and he gets a big spaceship to go after me. He resurrects an old cruiser from the old Imperial era. And he says, well, now I've got a big old cruiser. What are you going to do? And then um, they basically just went, well, we're going to turn it off and we're not going to tell you how to turn it back on. <laughs> yeah. So they, they just switch it off. And because it's, it's fanatical, it, it's religious zealots who have been trained to use it, they're all just like, no, I won't do it. <laughs> like, and, and, and they're bugger. God has abandoned us. <laughs> they hang their captain as a sacrifice. I think yeah. remember years since I read the books, but it's, I think it's like it's, rem that. it's remarkable, but like honestly, kind of realistic. Right? Yeah. Like kind of realistic. realistic. Like we can see how that works. And one of the things that I remember Seth posted, and this is something really fun to like live by is that um, fiction is at a disadvantage from reality because fiction has to make sense. Yes, right? that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah, I, love I, that. I, I love that, I love that. And that's one of the things where I, I, I'd almost just say like, and, and coming off the heels of my conversation with the guy earlier this morning, which would have been coming out just prior to this episode. So two weeks ago, you would have heard it. So my conversation with Adrian Gramps, it's, it, it kind of came down to this. It's like, really the story has whatever your narrative needs right? Like the world needs to feed your narrative. And like, and, and that's why, you know, we can talk about Firefly, which is a little bit ambiguous, aliens, a little ambiguous, a couple of these other ones that have these limitations that are arbitrary, but kind of fun. And, and they work really well with the story. And it's fascinating to see how all of this comes to pass. But for those of us who want to dive in deep, you want to be thinking about relativity. You want to be thinking about how time passes. You want to be thinking about the physical limitations of the universe that we're in. Yeah. Now, um, I want to raise one more thing because it was raised on the uh, on on our on our Facebook group, and I wanted to I wanted to ask this: What do we all think about um, Admiral Holdo f uh, going at hyperspace through that giant star destroyer in uh, in the in the Last Jedi? I thought it looked so pretty, <laughs> and I checked out. It was literally in that moment, I was like, wow, this movie looks great. And I checked out and I have legitimately not checked back into Star Wars since. <laughs> it destroyed it. It destroyed it for me. And I know that seems like such a small and insignificant thing. But all I could think about from that point on was why didn't they just attach hyperdrives to, to asteroids and send them into planets? Why build the Death Star? Well, There's well, actually a precedence for that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Go, go for it, Ed. Like, well, actually, to answer your first question, um, as far as I understand, hyperspace that would have been impossible because if yeah. one of the ships was in hyperspace and the other one wasn't, it right. would have, fifth dimensionally speaking, gone under and would hit it. Yeah, yeah. And there may have been some, depending on the, there'd be very minor gravity wells formed by both crafts, so they may have scratched, um, depending on how deep in hyperspace the hyperspace traveling ship was yeah um what was the second question and the and the biggest issue is that um <laughs> in in star wars in star wars it doesn't take distance to move into hyperspace right yeah, yeah. you see the ship traveling through the other ship and the problem is that when you jump into hyperspace as ed is saying it's first of all you're in a different space and second of all your ship does not 
move forward. It, it appears to disappear forward, but there's right. no actual forward movement. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to jump when a fleet was in front of you. So yeah. when they're escaping a planet and they get out of the gravity of the planet and they jump to hyperspace, it doesn't matter if there's a blockading yeah. fleet. Unless they have a like gravity well ship, like a, a ship that generates a gravity well. Like the Death Star. That, that yeah, might- that, would, that would be a problem. Thrawn in the Timothy Zan books uses these ships that create artificial gravity wells that pull other ships out of hyperspace in order to ambush them. Yeah, that would hypothetically work. <laughs> so this whole thing just, it broke the world for me. Yeah. So in the future, when anybody wants to ask the burning question, who hurt you, Seth? <laughs> it was Admiral Holdo. <laughs> That's who hurt him. Like, uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, sorry. Ed, go for it. In the hyperspace with the pointy ship. <laughs> yeah. Admiral Holdo in the hyperspace with the pointy ship. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, no. So uh, I'll, I'll draw us to a close on that. I think one of the things that was kind of interesting in talking about that as well, especially, was that it approached that thing of you're approaching the light barrier if you want your sci-fi to have that element of realism, you either go through it or yes. you go under it or right. around it might around be another it. way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So hyperspace theoretically went around it, but instead in this one, it went through, through it, it, which is the problem. Yeah. Um, I think they, they, they have an, in, they have an in-canon explanation. He jumped, from, um, he jumped from within a docking bay. I think it was in the, in episode seven. Yeah. So that, demonstrates that within their genre what we're saying is is legit because if he could jump from inside that no matter how c-3po whined yeah the same thing that's surely the same effect would happen she'd go woohoo i'm coming oh missed you (laughs) right which which makes it a little bit silly that they didn't just all turn around and jump okay because hyperspace was broken um, yeah, apparently. And that's why she managed to use it to hit the other ship. Right. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah. wasn't working. Yeah. It wasn't working for us right there. We'll draw this one to a close. I think we've had we've had a good discussion here, guys. I think we've come up with some pretty neat points on this. And uh, as ever, it's kind of like uh, narrative is king, man. Uh, but sometimes you are going to really piss off your fans if you break your hyperspace. <laughs> so with that said, this has been another episode of the Worldcraft Club. Thanks. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the World Craft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rate. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.